The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's one of those simple, beautiful things to hear that sort of blossoming of social energy that happens. So I just want to welcome everybody and acknowledge that for those of you who are here for the first time, it's not always easy to walk into this kind of a new space. And please let us know if we can, what we can do to help you feel welcome. We really want, we know it's a work in prog- progress, but we really want Common Ground to be a welcoming community for all people that are interested in these practices that we do here. And uh, oh, just the way culture and difference works, we know, I mean, we have enough wisdom to know that that's not an easy aspiration to make this place feel safe. And you can look around the room and you get a very clear sense of, you know, who might feel comfortable in this space and who might not feel comfortable in this space. And uh, one of the things that we've really taken on more strongly the last five years is to just be more sensitive to how safety, how comfort works for people who maybe don't look like the majority of us in this room or for whatever reason, has a different background and doesn't necessarily feel comfortable walking into this space. And we really encourage everyone in the community just to develop radar for difference and just how to take care of everybody. Uh, There's sort of, I don't know if it's a cliche, but in sort of the spiritual worlds, especially New Age worlds, there can be this nice idea about, you know, hey, we're all in this together, or we're all the same. But, but it's also true that we're all different, and we, we come with different backgrounds and different cultural experiences. And part of really being able to connect is holding both truths. So it's good to notice what our tendency of the mind is, to want to think that everything's the same or we're all the same. Then that means our work, that may be true in part, but then that means our work is to notice difference. Not to kind of isolate people, but to learn how to better connect and take care of people. And I, th- I know for myself as a white person, this has really been an, an important education to kind of just to notice difference and to develop some radar, to see what I basically to see what I haven't been seeing. And this is especially important in communities like Common Ground, you know, where Often we don't have much to do with each other, but maybe we come together on a Sunday or a Wednesday or whatever it might be. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of powerful and intimate work happens in a place like this just because of the nature of the practice, quieting the mind, developing sensitivity. And really at the heart of the awakening pro- process is the need for safety. And uh, so that's just, uh, maybe you notice, maybe you haven't, but we have this sign uh, above the shoe rack when you walk in, but it represents something that's been really deepening and growing, maybe from the start, but especially these last five to ten years, about just realizing, you know, as we've matured as an organization, uh, that not everybody feels comfortable. I mean, we know this now because people are more brave to let us know, but not everybody feels comfortable walking in, even though. For some of us, we'd all think, well, Common Ground is such a safe and comfortable place. Of course everyone feels comfortable. Well, it's just not the case. And just 
not realizing that fact is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, that we wouldn't be aware how this might feel walking into a place like this. And then what and then just naturally, like from our practice this morning, you know, this feeling this tender heartedness, knowing that people don't feel safe, don't feel included, don't feel treated justly, right? And we just naturally want to see what we're not seeing and be part of the resolution of that trauma and that suffering and not perpetuating it in all the different subtle ways or not so subtle ways that it happens. And it happens at Common Ground. I mean, we, because we're more sensitive and because um, of our, the slow diversification of our leadership, we hear more and more about how people get harmed in places like Common Ground that a lot of us might just presume are really safe spaces. And this brings us to the topic today. Some of you have been reading along in Guy Armstrong's book that we've been, some of you have been reading for over a year. And the last chapter is on this intersection of compassion and emptiness. And the book is Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators. Even though we're finishing it, it's still a good book. So you get a hold of it if you'd like. Or you can just listen to the recorded Dharma talks over the last year that have been slowly moving through this book. And so the last chapter, and really the very interesting question for each of us is how does, you know, the investigation of our heart, stabilizing present moment awareness so we can use awareness to investigate the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart, and seeing that the nature of the mind and the nature of the heart, this thing we call me, is a natural process in the sense of it being empty of anything other than this is being known right now. This experience is being known, and that's it. So it's a natural process, because that experience of something being known, something being known, it's an unfolding, conditional process, right? Each moment conditions the next moment that will then be known, unless the mind is distracted, lost in thought then it won't be known. And so we you know, stabilize present moment awareness. We use awareness to study the heart, the nature of the mind. We see that it's empty. It's very profoundly simple. The nature of the mind, the nature of you and me, the nature of this moment is something is being known, and it's empty of anything beyond that. It's just this being known. No matter how complex it appears to you right now, no matter how real the past or our ideas of the future appear to us, no matter how complex the emotional feeling that we have right now, it's just, subjectively speaking, just this being known. And that's it. There's nothing that doesn't refer to anything. And if it seems like it does refer to something, like me back there, that's just something being known now. That's all that is. It's just another thing being known, and another thing being known. And when we begin to sense this, it can scare us, because we wonder, well, who will, if I align myself with the truth of my actual experience, as I'm sort of painting a picture of it, if I align myself, if I orient my life around this understanding in this way of being, this way of relating, this way of understanding, 
you know, will I be a monster or will I be a nice person? Or will I become passive and just vegetate somewhere? Or will I show up? And how will I respond to suffering? Or how will I deal with the garbage that needs to be emptied? Or the cat that needs to be fed? Or the friend that needs to be held? Or, you know, whatever. The march that needs someone to show up to. How will I do that? If I'm really uncovering layer by layer, moment by moment, the deeper understanding that everything is just a natural process. And as a human being, it's just something being known, something being known, something being known. We have this real sense that seeing happens, seeing is known, but there is no seer. Sensations are being known, but there's no body, no body, no somebody in the body. It's just sensations being known. Thoughts are being known, emotions are being felt. But that's just what they are, emotions being felt or thoughts being known. Even really profound, sublime, beautiful thoughts are just that, thoughts being known, emotions being felt. And I think the answer isn't for someone to tell us like who we will be, but it's kind of commitment, you know, we, we have to make a choice at some point do I align myself with the way it is or do I align myself with being a person who is choosing not to be intimate or not to be connected? So like choosing to be in my bubble, whatever that might be, different for each of us, or choosing to let go of my bubbles, to abandon the bubbles and to align with the way it is, no matter what it is. Like I'm going there, I choose intimacy, I choose to become whoever I will become, to be whatever I will be. I choose intimacy, I choose integrity, I choose clarity, and whatever comes from or out of that. And it, you know, if we knew it was gonna work out, and that we'd get that house, that cool house, and the cool partner, and the perfect life, well then, you know, then it'd be easy. (laughs) This is why in, in Buddhism, the Buddha really emphasizes the thing that really helps clarify in a very ordinary way our life is our actual experience of suffering. Because what propels us forward toward a life that's in alignment with the way it is, valuing clarity, valuing intimacy, valuing being more and more undefended, more and more connected, is how, when we become sensitive, how intolerable it is to be in denial or to be lost in our thought. It's just that we learn doesn't work. To have fixed views doesn't work. I mean, boy, we try. We try to hold our fixed views, our fixed opinions. But if we're even a little sensitive, life beats us up. Any way that we're fixed, even being fixed with the idea of needing to be a good person, the identification being fixed to the idea of needing to be a good person 
turns out to get in the way of being a good person. Any fixedness of the mind, any way our mind is dependent or holding, actually, as we develop our practice, we see it gets in the way of being real and responsive and nimble and alive and capable of doing what needs to be done in the moment. And so that's that, you know, this is where emptiness comes in. It's really that fork in the road, which happens in every moment, really, not just once, between the relative comfort of our beliefs or ideas, so living out of our ideas, our fixed notions, or living out of what we would call awareness, mindful awareness, which means knowing that we don't know and knowing that it's okay not to know because we have another refuge than knowing that, or pretending at least, that we know. We have another refuge, which is knowing that we don't know, which opens up the possibility of just being aware, of seeing, or feeling. And and that's only moment by moment. Like whatever the mind is aware of, whatever the mind knows, I'm not talking about knowing the idea I have that explains all of this. It's just knowing the moment of seeing or know, knowing the, the moment of emotion. It's just knowing the experience of the body and mind moment by moment. And it doesn't mean we can't in a moment sort of put together a story, but we're training the mind not to be dependent on the story because it gets in the way of being connected, being open, being present. And that's, how, that's the only way we know how to respond, how to show up in the moment. We have to be intimate to know what to say or not say in the moment. If we're not sensitive, deeply, profoundly open, sensitive, intuitive, undefended, then our response will come out of not being open, intimate, present. It will come out of our you know, the way our mind has been conditioned by culture, which if you take a look at it, there's not a lot of wisdom in how we've been conditioned by culture. I mean, think about, I mean, I always joke, but it's really telling just to remember the conditioning forces of television that some of us watched and the value systems in that television, those books, those conversations, the schools we attended, the parents and their values as you know as good of as or not so good of a job as our parents have done right we are the continuation of all of that there's we don't have a choice right and it it makes no sense for me to be ashamed of my conditioning or to feel guilty about my conditioning as a white you know middle class straight person you know here in America at this time, right? Because that those conditioning forces just were th- what they were. It's not like I or anybody chose. But in the se- on the other hand, I'm totally responsible for how this now is like this, like the expression of this life. And so the way we take responsibility is, is to no longer tolerate being unaware. Instead, we're cultivating this value instead of living out our conditioning being the continuation of our parents and our culture right we're choosing to feel it and see it and to 
feel it and see it externally and internally. And it feels completely overwhelming. But I often say, and this really ties in the whole book, that the way, the general way I think, I mean, the, the awakening process works differently for each person to some degree. But the basic way it works is human beings that are fortunate enough to not be completely oppressed or overwhelmed by life, by poverty, whatever. Then those human beings, if they bump into these teachings, can be inspired to cultivate uh, the, you know, the mental muscle of presence, the stable, clear, non-judging present moment awareness. In other words, you, we have, if we're fortunate enough, we have the choice to become really sensitive, right? which is really hard to bear. It's relatively easy to get through life being distracted, you know, caught up in this, caught up in that. But to be really sensitive, to really be feeling what we're feeling and sensing what's happening around us, that's not easy. It just breaks our heart. And it evokes kind of all kinds of reactive tendencies, like to want to put our head in the sand, like the sort of ostrich does, or to hide, or to get angry, or to, you know, and we see this all the time in ourselves, these different reactions, like I just want a movie, I don't care if it's any good, you know, just let me absorb into something. So I don't have to feel what I'm feeling. I don't have to process what it feels like to be living my life, right? And we have amazing things, see, like when you go into a bar and you see all the different alcohols, I, I don't go to, into bars, but I was just at a coffee bar and they like have all these different flavors you can have. You know, it's just like an example of the array of distractions. You can take a shot of vanilla, a shot of caramel, or a shot of hazelnut, or a shot of raspberry. I mean, it's like amazing. And then now it's just not coffee drinks, and then they have the equivalent with uh, matcha and, and what's that herb from South America with caffeine? Uh, what is it? No. Herba? Yerba, yerba mate, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and so there's like, and so they have like the diversity of distractions, even in one coffee, so-called coffee place. It's amazing, on ice, not on ice, hot, cold. <laughs> you know, with dairy, without dairy. And then if it's not dairy, almond, soy, or <laughs> coconut. <laughs> and it, it's not over, right? <laughs> it's only going to expand. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really amazing. So it's like, and it's not like we have to avoid all that because that's its own fixed view. It's like being afraid of that, you know, the diversity of pleasant or seductive experience. But we want to really see that choice moment by moment if we can, like the real possibility of touching in, touching the earth, touching the heart, and really that tender-heartedness and really living with it because that's what will, um, it almost provokes the arising of wisdom. Letting go, the cracking open, the sort of realization of true love, if you'd like that more than the word wisdom, it, it 
we're kind of a hard nut to crack. But there's one thing that can crack this nut, and that's opening to the way it is, being touched by the beauty and the misery, the depth of suffering. That will crack this nut. So that's why we develop awareness, not to become immune, but to become intimate. And all this sort of beautiful, stable qualities we do experience every once in a long while, maybe, in our meditation where we feel like the mind is very calm and very sort of beautiful and stable. And we feel like I'm above it all. That's, this is the shadow of samadhi. I mean, samadhi is a great thing. And, but to, uh, to misunderstand what it's there for. Right? So when you do feel some immunity in your life because you're being well-loved in that moment or because you've had a good set right? or you've had some success, then we don't want to waste that safety. In a way, we want to say, like to really let it in, to really feel it and touch it and be intimate with it precisely because it allows us to include more of what the heart finds hard to open to. Right, so opening to the beauty, whether it's the beauty of samadhi, a really peaceful sit, where there was a lot of calm, a lot of brightness in the mind, or some other kind of beauty that we've been able to run into in life, then we use that to be able to include more and more of the parts of our life that we believe we have to stay close to, or unaware of, or afraid of. And often it's our own, it's not just like the suffering in the outside world, it's equally like the parts of our own mind and heart that we find hard to appreciate or understand or accept or forgive. Oh yeah, I did say that. I did have that despicable thought. And this is what grows the wisdom because what is wisdom? It understands that everything is nature, not self. The beauty is nature, it's not self. It's not personal when something good or beautiful happens to us or around us. And that despicable stuff, when we end up making a mistake or doing something stupid or hurting somebody, that's also nature, not self. So in a sense, we're responsible for being intimate and responding and taking care of. But it's not self. It's not us. It's just the way it is. It's something being known. It feels like this. What way of being, what way of responding, what way of relating might actually be helpful right now? Right? That's the only question. It's, the question is, remains always pragmatic or practical. What's a skillful way of relating? I mean, that's what wisdom is. The understanding that this is empty, this is a natural process, is a practical, pragmatic conclusion of the mind. Right? It's not like we discover some sacred text deep in the heart, deep in the mind, deep in some exalted state of meditation that this is the truth, it's a natural process, it's empty. No, it's really much more functional than that. It's like we're just operating. At some point, it dawns in the mind that all views are relative. So then we're in this very pragmatic mode. What is the skillful, useful, functional way of being. And this understanding of emptiness or everything as a natural process 
is functional. It doesn't matter whether it's actually metaphysically true. The Buddha wasn't interested in metaphysics. He was interested in in resolving the practical issue of a human being with an aching, fearful heart. These teachings are designed to address the ache in our hearts, not win some philosophical debate. Although Buddhism or the Dharma, you know, these teachings, hard to beat philosophically. You can ask Patrice (laughs) or others who have, John's in the room I think somewhere too, who's kind of spent their much of their life looking at philosophical ideas. It's a pretty tight system philosophically. A lot of us have faith energy to check out, to actually do the practice because how powerful the ideas are just on that conceptual level. They make a lot of sense that everything is a natural process. It's not a weird idea on just sort of on this level of thinking about it. It may not be how our mind was conditioned to think about the world. But when we actually look at the world, the Buddha's pointing out instructions, well, they just make a lot of sense. You know, like I said earlier, you know, that all we know is that this is being known. Whatever the experience for you right now is, body experience, mind experience, it's being known. That we can say with certainty, right? This is being known. And that's about it. We can, the mind can, with great confidence, know this is being known. Everything else is speculation. And can we live in that simple place, that empty place, that place that is empty of the speculations, the fixed ideas? And what kind of person will we be? So I'll leave it here. Uh, the last few weeks, we haven't had a lot, a lot of time to hear from folks, so we have about 15 minutes today. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this. So any questions about these, this topic, especially the connection between emptiness and compassion, the sort of warmth and tenderheartedness, and how that arises because of the deepening of understanding? Yeah, what comes to mind? Questions or comments from your own own practice, your own life experience you'd like to share with the group? Oh, all the way in the corner here. Tom. So in answer to the question, what, in answer to the question, what, what do we learn about compassion? Um, This morning I had the experience of of sitting with very strong feelings of sadness, grief of images from my past, of images of myself as a boy, and I think my experience was of um, 
of this moment uh, acknowledging with compassion suffering in the past and simply the willingness to acknowledge watch allow Um, brought um, brought new feeling brought new experience yeah thanks Tom it's interesting how something really painful can feel so right when it's moving, when the heart or mind, the wisdom, trusts that it's okay for it to move. Even though it's painful, it feels good that it's moving, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing with us. Who would like to share next? Yeah, please, Robert. Um, Just briefly, could you say a little about what samadhi is, and then what the opposite is of that. Yeah. There's a beautiful uh, image in the tradition, a honed and heavy axe. And if you think about cutting down a tree with an axe, you want it to have both weight and sharpness, right, if, you're, if it's really going to do the job. And this is an image in the tradition to help us understand the kind of heart or mind that we need to do the work of waking up. We need a honed and heavy axe. So the mind needs to be sharp. That's the wisdom piece. So that's more like uh, open-mindedness, like like uh, I'm really curious. I don't have a fixed view, so I'm really alert. I'm really interested because my the absence of a fixed view keeps the, mi- the mind in that alert, interested Way, right? And a lot of the teachings, the wisdom teachings, I mean, you, they're not something to cling to. The wisdom teachings are more how to get to that place of no fixed view. So even like the teaching on emptiness is to sort of loosen uh, the habit of clinging to a personal view of something, right? So that's the wisdom. And the weight is the samadhi, the weight of the axe, right? That and so there's a kind of internal safety that comes with samadhi. And the mind, the heart, the body actually too feels safe because the mind has temporarily turned its attention, you could say, to the space of the mind, the inner happiness of the mind, the peace of the mind. So it's not being afflicted by what it's seen what it's hearing, and even to some degree what it's thinking because it's choosing not to be distracted by thoughts, kind of surface-level thoughts, or distracted by sights, or distracted by sounds. And even as the samadhi deepens, the concentration deepens, not even distracted by physical sensations. 
So some of you who've had touched into a deeper state of concentration or samadhi, you might have noticed that you're not really feeling the body. And people can get confused like, am I levitating? Is the body there? Right? Because in a way, you know you're still embodied, but the body doesn't feel like it normally feels because the attention isn't paying attention to the gross level of sensations. It's withdrawn from that object of awareness. It's withdrawn from sounds. There may be sounds in the room, but the awareness isn't attending to the sounds in the room. I mean, we get a little samadhi even when we're reading a good novel where somebody can walk in the room and we wouldn't hear them because we're engrossed in the content of the story, right? So we know this experience to some degree when we're absorbed in something. But samadhi is just that capacity for the mind to seclude itself from what's agitating. And we call that unification of the mind. That's a better word, English word, than concentration is for samadhi. The collectedness or the unification of the mind. And the flavor of it is that it, we, the mind, heart, feels stable. It feels like solid in a funny way even though the body may disappear as kind of a gross level of sensation. But there's a sense of the mind, heart being held in the present moment, not easily pushed around. And that's the weight of the acts. Because there's some real safety. That mind's willing to look at the world, the moment, things just as they are, without preconceived ideas, because it has this internal sense of being safe of being held, of trusting the nature of the mind itself, the nature of the mind to be unified. And so then it's willing to see more clearly without preconceived ideas or fixed ideas. It doesn't need the safety of our belief systems or cultural conditioning because in normal states of mind, we're really dependent on our usual way of seeing and thinking. But when we have samadhi, then we have some independence because we have another refuge, this sort of inner sense of stability. Yeah. And we can, you know, get that in a good sit, but we can get that living with a lot of integrity, a lot of commitment to non harming, a lot of commitment to generosity, these sort of normal uh, qualities of being a good human being. If they're developed intentionally, you get a lot of that same kind of stability that comes out of, in Buddhism we call it sila, which gets translated as moral conduct or ethical conduct or integrity. But we just have faith in the goodness of our heart. Like my heart, this heart, knows how to be a good human being, knows how not to be stingy, knows how not to steal or take or intentionally cause harm. And that gives us some immunity just knowing that the heart's good knows how to be good. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Robert. Yeah, I am. I hope I can ask this in a way that makes sense. How do you... Okay. There's a feeling going on. You don't want to identify it as, you know... um, me or whatever, um, but yet you're feeling this. How do you not? How do you not stay attached to it? How do you let go of it? You know? Do you? Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. 
I don't think you can let go of it. But letting go can happen. So the, the, to rephrase your question, it might be, what are the causes for letting go of attachment to happen? When we have a especially strong feeling would be one of the easiest things for the mind or heart to get attached to because emotional feeling, the strong unpleasantness, let's say, of a feeling, it's very seductive, right? We have a lot of habit energy to take strong, especially unpleasant feelings personally, but also pleasant. We take them personally. So what are the, what are the supporting causes for that non-attachment to a strong feeling? Well, one of them is over and over again to see that the attachment to feeling, all that it brings in is suffering. It hurts. Whenever the mind identifies with a feeling, my feeling, my pleasantness, my unpleasantness, there's a crunch. And I was sort of saying in response to Tom's sharing, you know, where he was talking about that movement that he experienced during the sit this morning, right? And I asked him, yeah, that feeling as you described it was really unpleasant, but that it was moving, that was pleasant, and he acknowledged that. And so that's the interesting thing. It's like non-attachment to feeling, letting the feeling just move, it feels right to do that. Holding, identifying, thinking that that feeling, thinking that I have to get rid of this feeling or I have to manage this feeling or I need to get some space from this feeling, then there's the sense of being a someone who is suffering. It, we feel bothered. We feel personally bothered by it. So the cause is, initially, a lot of the investigation is seeing how attachment hurts. Seeing that attachment needs to go away is not the same as trying to make attachment go away. right? So really train your mind to see, oh yeah, this attachment hurts. This attachment is unnecessary. And just really appreciate that clarity. Attachment identification hurts. Good to know. It's hard to hang out because we're being aware of dukkha. We're being aware of suffering. But that is the cause for the letting go. Not you or me letting go, but seeing that suffering or that attachment is the cause for suffering is the cause for letting go. Because in, in this world where we are learning to see this all as a natural process, there is nobody who lets go. There is nobody who suffers and there's nobody who lets go. Both the sense of there being someone who's suffering ultimately is a natural process. And the sense of there being somebody who's letting go of suffering and experiencing freedom, that's also a natural process. Suffering is, suffering is real, but no sufferer can be found. So we see somebody suffering, we don't tell them, hey, it's empty, why are you bothering suffering? Because then you're just causing more suffering for the person. Yeah, and they have rights then to cause you some suffering. (laughs) (laughs) But what we can do is we can see in that moment that suffering is real. This suffering is real. But we can see it as a natural process, right? But that just helps us get closer to that person because that's actually what's happening there. There is a natural process that is suffering in that moment. 
the identification is suffering, the wanting to be free from suffering is suffering. All of that is a natural process and we can show up to that. And we can model, that's what compassion is. It's modeling non-suffering in the proximity of suffering. We do that with our own suffering and we do that with another. Thanks, Haya. I think we need to leave it here. It's 11.45. Let's just take a few seconds. It's always nice to let go of the words. a real blessing that we don't need to hold on to anything. Some of what you've been practicing and learning has landed and will be available and some of it is somewhere on some shelf in the mind. But in any case, we allow the heart, mind, and body to settle, to let go. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.